Hi, my name is Michelle O'Keary, and my definition of relentless is to continue no matter what's thrown at you. Welcome to the Relentless Podcast, and we are so happy to have our guest today, Michelle O'Keary. Talk to us about some of her childhood struggles and experiences and how that led her to have a purpose-driven career helping others in the nonprofit sector. All right, welcome to the Relentless Podcast. Uh, I'm Kyle Dubay, and I'm very excited to have a friend of mine here, Michelle O'Curry, who we've known for a, a, each other for a little while, and we've done some work together. And I'm excited to chat with you uh, about your life story, about where it has led you, about some of the things that you've done, and about what you're doing now, um, and how you've had to be relentless in your life at times to get to where you are. Um, So thank you very much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah, it'll be good. It'll be good. Um, Michelle, you, uh, from Saskatchewan originally, now you're in Edmonton. Um, you talk to us a little bit about, uh, talk to us about little Michelle, little young Michelle, where do you come from as far as, as household, as far as all that type of stuff. And, and, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself when you were, when you were a youngster. Uh, sure. So, uh, I guess starting from the beginning when I was born, uh, my dad was actually on his first placement. He's an RCMP officer in um, northern Saskatchewan on the Peter Ballantyne Cree Nation. So just at the southern tip of Reindeer Lake um, and kind of had uh, my first experience with what it was like to be in a rural and remote community and maybe a lack of access to some of the services that you have in a bigger city like Edmonton. And so my mom needed an emergency C-section in order to have me and she had to be helicoptered out of the community in order to give birth. And so um, that's kind of how things started for me. Um, we were there for a couple of years before my dad got transferred to Tisdale, Saskatchewan, where I kind of started, um, you know, preschool, kindergarten, that sort of thing. And then my parents separated. So they had a pretty tumultuous relationship. Um, but I have two younger brothers or two younger siblings, a brother and a sister, um, who were born, uh, to my, my mom and dad. And we moved to a small town called Wapella, Saskatchewan. So under 400 people, again, very rural and remote, um, where my mom struggled, kind of to find work and and her place in the world, especially raising actually four children because I have an older sister uh, who's nine years older than me. And so we were on and off social assistance kind of my whole upbringing. Um, I remember, you know, fortunately being part of a small community that I had a community around me that cared. Um, You know, I'd go for dinners at friends' houses or when we had a school trip coming up that my principal would call and say, do you need a packed lunch for tomorrow? Or if I wanted to play sports, like, uh, you know, I was a figure skater, but I also played um, competitive fastball, that I was able to tap into things like kids sport in order to get a new baseball glove or cover my registration costs. And so I always had this kind of sense of community and support around me, which really, I think, led into my adult life of getting really involved in the not-for-profit sector. Um, and so, you know, while it was challenging, I think it's just what you know. and. When I was, you know, we kind of made it work, but when I was 14, uh, we went to my dad's for the summer and two days before, sorry, and two days before I was supposed to start high school, my mom called and said, um, you know, she went to Mexico uh, for a vacation. She called and said, I'm I'm not coming home. You're going to start high school with your dad. You're starting high school in North Battleford. 
And so that was probably as as hard as life had probably been up until that point. That moment was a really defining moment for me because um, everything changed. You know, the community that I had around me in Wapella, the expectations of friends I had grown up with, what high school was going to be like, graduation, et cetera. Everything kind of shifted in a moment. And then you're coming into a situation where my dad had just recently been remarried. They had their idea of what their life was going to be together. And now you have three kids plopped on you um, and you're starting school in a new community with a sense of like abandonment from mm. somebody that you trusted to be there for you in yeah. a parent. Yeah. Um, so you, let's back it up a little bit. When you talk about that community, um, really it, it's, it's a definition of it takes a village, 100%. right? This community was really helping you, your siblings, I'm assuming your mom, mm -hmm. right? Um, but you were living in poverty. Like we're not talking like this times were tough here. Oh yeah. Like massive food insecurity. Um, and a lot of, a lot of how I grew up, like it really was feast or famine. So mm. there were times my mom may have picked up work and things were a little bit better, but there was never like long-term planning associated with that. Um, or, you know, depending on the guy she was dating at the time, you know, all of a sudden we would be doing $800 Costco trips and you'd have everything. And then that relationship wouldn't work out and we'd be back to living paycheck to paycheck and, um, you know, screening calls for bill collectors and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so it, uh, it was a really, it was a really tough, um, experience. And I think also being in a small community, everybody knows your business. Yeah. So that can be a really good thing in that people know you're struggling and they look out for you, but it can also mean a lot of discrimination. And, um, you know, I think about kids that weren't allowed to come to my birthday parties or weren't allowed to spend the night at my house because of how our family was viewed in the community. Uh, everyone perceived it. Exactly. Right. right. So there's a lot that comes with that. And then on top of that, having a background of being indigenous, um, I'm pretty white passing now, but when I was a kid, I wasn't. And so I stuck out like a sore thumb in a small white community. Um, and then, you know, I had a lot of discrimination around that as well. So the names that I was called, things like that growing up. Um, and just again, how other people's parents would speak about you, that would really impact how kids treated you as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause kids hear what their parents say and then mirror that behavior or, or model it. Right. And let's be honest, kids are not nice. They're not as much as we want to think, oh, kids are innocent, but they're, they're, they're mean. Horrible. Yeah. yeah. Like I think about some of the things that I heard growing up, even just like the mean stuff of like being called rat face or like mm -hmm. things like that. Right. Or being made fun of for the clothing that you can't afford to buy and, and, and what you bring to school to eat because you're living in poverty. Um, those are really hard things that I think impact a lot of how you live as an adult as well. Yeah. It's such formative years. Yeah. Um, and so I think I spent a lot of time trying to prove people wrong. Like everyone said I was going to be barefoot and pregnant by the time I was 16. Mm. And so, or I was never going to graduate or go to university or some of those big milestones. Um, and so I think for me, that was a big motivator of, I'm going to prove these people wrong. Like I can yeah. do something with my life. I'm not going to be the person who stays in this small town forever. Um, and, and so, who is, you know, I mean, you've got these kids that are saying that, but, but like, are these like adults that are saying this to you as well? Like yeah. teachers or like, who's saying this stuff to you? Yeah. Like, like kids, parents, friends, parents literally said those things. Wow. Um, and like, and even within our own family, I had 
you know, aunts and uncles or like extended relatives that looked at our family in that way and said, you know, Chris's kids are never going to become anything. They're never yeah. going to do anything with their lives. Um, and so you're, you're, you're facing labeled. that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you're facing that not just from community, but also um, outside of that, people who are your family who are supposed to care about you. Yeah, yeah. At that age, when you hear those things over and over and over again, it would have been very easy to believe it, mm-hmm. to go down that path. Um, you've worked in the nonprofit sector. You've worked with vulnerable people a lot in, in your career. That's what I do for a living as well. And it is amazing how many people, um, it's almost like they believe that's their destiny and that's what they do. Uh, that's not you, though. No. That's that's not your case, which I'm excited to talk about soon. But let's go back to 14 years old. Um, how did mom go to Mexico if you had no money? Good question. Yeah, uh, yeah kind of came back to there was a guy. Mm. Um and there had been, you know, a few trips and kind of lying about reasons for travel or being away and things like that, that had happened up until that point. And then it's easy, you know, over summer we go visit our dad, we're there, don't really think much about where mom is or what she's doing. But the idea that she wasn't coming back, like that was never, you never consider that a possibility, right? And even even within a dysfunctional home, like you know what you know and you still, um, there's a sense of safety and Sure. In that. Sure. And so. Have you ever watched show Shameless? I have not. Shame, here's a plug for a show Shameless. It's it's the most dysfunctional hmm. family in the history of television. And yet there's this comfort that they all have within this absolute chaos. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah. And it's, it's just what you know. Um, and again, I. Though things were a struggle, I also had a sense of community where I was. I had really good friends that I'd grown up with. Um, and it sounds really bad, but I actually think, like, at the time, I thought the loss was that, right? My friends, the sense of community starting high school. Like, all the things you think matter so much as a kid. Sure. Um, and it wasn't until I was more of an adult that I realized, like, what the real pain was is someone that you love and trust and who's supposed to take care of you has left like yeah. no thoughts about your well-being in that situation and my dad's home wasn't the safest place either my dad um as a lot of officers struggle with psd yeah. or ptsd yeah. um alcohol abuse that sort of thing and <clears throat> there were violent outbursts there were times that home wasn't safe mm-hmm. and so i often found myself um, kind of as the oldest, having to get between my dad and my brother or get between, you know, like stick up for my younger siblings in a situation that didn't feel safe. Right. And so um, that... I was, was going to ask you about your relationship with your dad, but just take one step back. Yeah. Um, I think it's a combination. So, you know, you say you realize later on, like your mom abandoning you. I mean, the trauma there is massive. Mm-hmm. But if this happened at 14 years old, um, I would say most people... Um, listening to this and there's probably nine people listening um, it's it's one of these things where if you remember yourself at 14 your parents mattered so much yet they didn't matter it was your entire world was your friends your entire world was the activities you were involved with and that's what mattered the most and now you're being told and that's all gone yeah and I'm never coming back your mom saying I'm never coming back that combination, to me, the trauma would have been 
overwhelming, especially at 14 years old where your brain isn't developed. You're like, how do you, how do you even handle that? And now you were thrown into your dad's place. Um, not very stable either. All new. Um, your relationship with your dad, what was it like? Um, so I was the firstborn. My dad wanted a boy. Like, mm. actually, it's comical. I'm my dad's name's Michael. I'm Michelle. And then the second born, my brother, is Michael. Okay. So my dad's a bit of an egomaniac. Yeah. Um, he'll probably watch this and be mad I said yeah. that. Uh, <laughs> but it's true. Um, but yeah, so we, I always sought my dad's attention growing up, but I wasn't the boy, right? My brother got spoiled. He, like, he had the new, every toy, everything, right? And it's funny because I think my dad really wanted my brother to be, like, an athlete. He wanted him to be... Um, really into sports and some of the things my dad was into and my brother wasn't at all that was not his thing but I was right and I think I I sought it even more like I would watch sports with my dad I would you know go to the driving range and we'd golf or I you know pitching in the backyard so I could bat like we would do all of those types of things but it never felt like I ever measured up in that relationship and so I was constantly seeking it and kind of shifting myself to better fit the model that that he wanted um, and I think uh, probably led me to be probably more of who I am now. Uh, but at the same time, and I, I think I got, I wanna say in fairness, I got some really good life lessons from my dad and there were times that things were really good. But when you're dealing with alcoholism, um, it is a disease and when someone's not willing to get help, it's like you're dealing with two different people, yeah. right? Like there's this person over here that's gonna pitch in the backyard so you can do batting practice. And then there's this person over here who's you know, intoxicated and violent and um, mean. And so that was a real struggle. So we kind of got okay. Like, I think I was developed enough by the time that we, that I moved in that like, I wasn't going to be super controllable or I was, I was going to stick up. Like I was always going to be the person that was going to stick up for my younger siblings. Or if he came at me, like I knew your job relies on uh, you acting a certain way. And if I call 911 right now, there's going to be some implications around that. Yeah, this is bad. And so I was able to manage that. Um, But again, that also put a lot of pressure on me to be an adult far earlier than I maybe should have had to be. You grew up quickly. Yeah. Right. Uh, And and I would suggest that many of the the young people I've worked with in my career, um, they have a a resiliency that um, is unfortunately came from trauma. Mm -hmm. And there's there's some of them, and it sounds like you, uh, there's, there's this maturity uh, because you had to grow up quickly because you were put into situations where now you're actually responsible for yourself. And that's a lot at that age, but now you're also responsible for siblings. You're responsible for their well being, for your well being. Um, you get to, you got to 16, you weren't pregnant or barefoot. No. So you, you prove people wrong there. What were you like as a student? Like, what were you, were you driven? Were you, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in the background. There's a lot of white noise, chaos, everything happening. Um, at that time in your life, were you thinking, okay, I just want to, you know, pump gas at a gas station and just live my life? Or I, you, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. what, what drove you? Yeah. So I think there were a couple of things. So when I, if I, I think if I would have gone to high school in Wapella, while I would have still been a great student, the friends thing would have still been such a major focus, right? right? 
versus because I moved at that time and it was such a traumatic experience, I kind of threw myself more into school um, and books. I was actually very nerdy. Um, I started my high school. This isn't surprising to me. Like we, you're, you're taught, you're saying it to me. Like I'm supposed to be surprised. Okay. (laughs) Most people are surprised. (laughs) Feign surprise, please. Um, no. Yeah. Like I started my, um, high school book club with my librarian. Okay. Oprah. Hello. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I wrote for like, I was the, uh, school, like our schools, like connect with the local, newspaper and did the articles liaison. yeah i did yes. articles for the local newspaper nice. um i did play some sports like i still played um fastball at a provincial level during that time yeah. so i had that sense of like team and fastball is where like you do the, the under yeah the, oh man that ball is moving yeah 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 so i did i still had that but i i did i definitely like poured myself into academia and i had it in my mind like i need to have scholarships in order to go to university um I because kn- you did need scholarships. I did. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. Ne- I did need right. it. Um, but I knew, like, I knew education was the pathway out of poverty for me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe hadn't been described that way, but I knew that that's where opportunity was. And I was always smart. Like, I always got really good grades growing up. And so I also had this pressure on me from, from family and the people around me that, like, you're the one that's going to do it. You're the one that's going to get out. You're the one that's going to go to university. And no one else in my family had. Like, I didn't know what that looked like. And so I just knew since I was like a young kid, I was going to, right? And maybe when I was younger, I thought I was gonna be like a lawyer or something like that. But whatever it was, I knew I was gonna go to and get an education. Yeah. And so I ended up being like a really great student, struggled with like maybe maths and sciences, but but got good enough grades. Um, And I did get scholarships and a ton of opportunities um, and was able to, you know, graduate with distinction and all of those things um, to then go on to university. And when I, finished school that was basically um after my first semester of university it was the end of my relationship with my dad like things Mm. really took um a turn at home once i was no longer there right and for me it was more about it was less about me like i could handle certain things happening to me i felt like i was strong enough to kind of bear those things but when it was impacting my brother and sister that's that's really where i drew the line yeah I like how you worded that, um, that education was your pathway out of poverty. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about that. Um, Because I'm interested to hear more about that pathway. And it, you know, from what you just said, there's obviously still some struggles along the way. Um, But yeah, we'll be right back. I was was looking at you guys before I came up. I'm like, dude, there must be money in dirt because you guys look nice. Hey folks, do you like to laugh? Who doesn't like to laugh? The You Can Comedy Nights are a ton of fun. And do they ever make you laugh? Listen, our next You Can Comedy Nights happen in March 2023. If you want all the details on how you can support our incredible organization, You Can Use Services, go to our website for more details. That is at youcancomedy.ca. And you can find out all about our shows, our comedians, who's coming in, and all the ways that you can come out and support us. We look forward to having you there. And uh, why don't you come and have some laughs supporting the serious work that we do at You Can Use Services. And now, back to the show. All right, back here with Michelle O'Carey. And um, we were talking about your pathway out of poverty. Uh, and, and for you, the start of that was education. 
Um, you got some scholarships. Uh, you did well in high school. You got the grades, the scholarships. What did you decide to go and at that time, what did you decide to go and be? Actually, I had no idea. So no. the funny thing was I knew I had to get an education. I knew university was was a way for me to um, kind of move forward and develop a career, but I had no idea what to do. So I actually started my first year at the University of Saskatchewan, and I just did arts and sciences, like get some classes in, figure out what I want to do. And, uh, and it was actually a lot more of a struggle than I was expecting. Like I had done so well in high school, and it was such a breeze. Like I could throw together a, an essay at lunchtime and submit it in the afternoon, right? I never thought much about it. And all of a sudden, you actually have to effort. Like there's a lot of work that goes into it. And because, you know, while I had some scholarships, it wasn't enough to sustain me. I had to work. Yeah. And so I was working full time the whole time I went through university. Like I worked a 40 plus work week and had five classes. Wow. And so the impact. It seems like there's just like your pathway out of poverty <laughs> is on an easy pathway. <laughs> no, like, it's not... it just seems like a lot. <laughs> it seems like a lot. Yeah. And, but you normalize it, right? Like yeah. I worked a lot during high school as well. And so um, as, I, as I did that, I actually really struggled my first semester, like a lot more than I was expecting, to the point that I failed a class. I failed Spanish. Um, and it was such a kick in the butt for me um, that I had to be really serious about this. I couldn't mail it in in the way that I had in high school. It just didn't come as easy. And so I actually ended up moving to um, Regina for my second year of university and I was originally planning to pursue a journalism degree um, and then decided that probably wasn't the way I wanted to go and then when I finished university I didn't really know what I wanted to do like I was like I did this I thought maybe I was going to go do a master's um, but of course I met my husband my last year of university oh, I've screwed everything up uh, so let's go back to the university stuff though yeah. where you you had said after your first year of university you were done with your dad yep so if you don't mind, I I find this all very I find family very interesting and and how it can be great for us or completely screw us up. Um, Mom is still completely out of the picture. Out of the picture for me, she came back actually at the very end, like right around my grade twelve graduation. She oh, came back okay. to Canada and actually moved to North Battleford where we were living, and I was like. There's no repairing this. Right. You left. Right. You've been gone for three years. Like that, it does, you don't just walk back into somebody's life like that. Yeah. And so I think that was probably traumatic as well. Like have, even just having her come back. Um, well, you're reliving the whole thing. A hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, then I move out and things, like I said, kind of went south at home with my brother and sister under my dad's house. Um, they ended up moving out and with my mom. Um, which also didn't necessarily work out after some time. And so both of them, when they were old enough to move out, did. Yeah. But it just, again, for me, it was a lot of how my siblings were treated that really But you were soured. still supporting them and doing everything you could to help them, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so I, while I didn't necessarily have a relationship with my mom, I had a relationship with my brother and sister who yeah. were living with her at that time. And so even my first year of university, I gave my mom my car so that they had a vehicle to get around because they were living in a terrible neighborhood and I didn't want my brother and sister walking. And so it was kind of a weird relationship in that it was more through them rather than with her. Right, right. But again, at a young age, you're the one that's responsible for this stuff. 
Yeah. Right. Which is to me just incredible. And it sh again, shows resiliency. Yeah. It also and, comes up in therapy. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and I'm not a therapist, so we can't, we won't go too hard on that. Um, so now you're done university mm -hmm. relationships are, are you meet your, your future husband. Um, and one thing that, that I've got to know about you, um, is that you are a person with empathy, 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 you are compassionate, you care about others. Um, you are this strong, independent person who has been through some shit, who got herself educated all like all on your own, who decides I want to go into the helping field now. I want to go help people. I want to go and see if I can um, change lives. Why? Some people run from that. Yeah. Some people say, nope, I've lived that. I'm going to go and try to be a millionaire. You said, no, I want to go and help people. Why? I think I just – so I when I first got out of university, I actually did policy work for the Home Builders Association – um, and believe it or not, that did, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and it was a lot of like, dear minister so-and-so, here's our five-point platform for sure. the industry, right? Like it was just, I was helping rich people get richer by mm -hmm. trying to get their taxes down. And it didn't drive me at all. Like I was just like, this well, is... How could that? Exactly. Right. And uh, I, I needed something that had more purpose. Like I wanted my life to have purpose. I wanted to feel like I was doing something meaningful. And so from there, I ended up at uh, the Community Foundation for South Sask. And it was that connection to the organizations that we supported and understanding the impact that they were having in lives. And specifically, what I cared about was the organizations that were having an impact in the lives of youth, like where I saw myself coming up, much like the work that you do, because I could see myself in it, right? right. Like that could have been me. That could have been my younger brother and sister. That could have been so many other people around me. And so um, understanding that those supports were in place and having that lived experience to bring to the table, it just meant more. And that was really like my pathway in. And I actually decided at a pretty early age, I was like 23 or something. It's hilarious that I, even at that time, I'm like, I'm going to run one of these things. Like I'm going to be the executive director or CEO of one yeah. of these. And uh, again, just being like a bit of a self-starter and, not afraid to ask, I reached out to probably a dozen executive directors, CEOs of like very large organizations throughout Canada. I like cold called them, like messaged yeah. them on LinkedIn and said, hey, do you have 20 minutes for me? Yeah. And just asked for their advice. Like if you, if you could go back, what would you have done differently? Or like, what's the best route to get into a position like yours? What can I learn from you? Will you mentor me? Every single person said yes. They totally gave me like this perfect roadmap. Wow. And, and so I was like, great, like I need to become a fundraiser. I need to get involved with the Association of Fundraising Professionals, work on my CFRE, get into major gifts. Like they really paved the way for me. Sure. And Gave I, you a roadmap. Exactly. Yeah. And I followed it. And so I ended up building out the major gifts program at United Way in Edmonton, which was, or sorry, in Regina, which was really cool. So I got to work with um, United Way International as well as um, the United Way of Miami-Dade that I got a, a mentorship agreement with. Mm. So I got to actually go there and see how they brought in $44 million a year. It's not bad. Yeah, it's a nice place to, place to go check out for a couple of weeks in September. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, so I, and I, I was just like, I was a grinder, right? And yeah. during that time, I was also always doing these other things on the side, right? Like starting businesses and, um, you know, giving back, volunteering, um, joining boards, things like that. Because I was so used to working full time and going to school full time that when I was just working a full time job, I was like, you're bored. Exactly. Yeah. I needed to be challenged. So constantly working on professional development and other things like that. And so I was able to advance my career quite quickly. Um, I actually, you know, what I thought was going to be, you know, my late 30s, maybe early 40s of reaching that goal of being an executive director or CEO, I got when I was 29. Right. So now you're in your, your late 20s going into your early 30s. You've reached this already. Um and I love this, the, 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 how you talked about calling all these CEOs and executive directors, because that's relentless. That to me is, is you had this in your brain and um, you thought, I want to change the world somehow. So I'm going to talk to people that are attempting to change the world. And I don't know if they're going to get a hold of me or respond to me. And they all did, which I think is great. Yeah. Um, and like you said, you're a grinder. You were just, you were learning as you went. You were, uh, networking, you were, you were building connections and relationships. Um, and at 29, you end up where? Yeah. So we moved to Edmonton. <clears throat> Apologies. Did you need to take a drink? Cause yeah. I know you're struggling with your, your, like, have, were you singing? We had a karaoke bar last night. That's me. Yeah. yeah. Big singer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I actually, so I was regional manager for Mad Canada I got to do some really incredible work there. And it kind of brought together all of the previous experiences that I had had um, in that they were looking for someone who could do government relations. I had a bit of that experience yeah. from when I started my career. They were looking for someone who could bring like, you know, their volunteer base together and, and really support them, who could fundraise, and then who could also do like that media relations and be in front of a camera. And so I kind of pulled that all together and they weren't really necessarily expecting to get all of that in one person. So right. it ended up being the perfect uh, situation for me. And it was a great opportunity. And especially from a profile standpoint, like I got to be challenged in the role, but I also got, like I was doing like five media hits a week sometimes. So my face was everywhere. I got yeah. to like learn and expand and uh, my network was crazy. Like it was just such a great learning opportunity. And then my husband gets an opportunity to come to Edmonton, and I'm covering Manitoba and Saskatchewan with my job. And so, you know, if originally they're like, well, we've got a good thing going here. We don't want to let geography mess this up. Like, if you can do it from Edmonton, great. Of course, it's not that easy. Right. Um, and I actually quite like my husband, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> That's really nice to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the idea of being on the road for three weeks out of the month just was not... Yeah. Um, of interest to me. And so when we came, fortunately, I got connected with some headhunters here who connected me with an opportunity that seemed right. Um, and so I was able to make a really easy transition into Edmonton, becoming the CEO of Compassion House Foundation. Right. And so then I'm all of a sudden in the situation where I've like, I've reached this mountaintop that I, you know, I didn't think I was going to reach for maybe another decade. Um, given this opportunity, and I don't necessarily think I had all the skills yet. <laughs> I didn't understand what it meant to lead an organization in that way or right. the dynamics between staff and board and community. Um, and so it was a bit of a challenging transi transition. Um, and I saw all the flaws in what I was doing. And so, of course, you kind of get in, you start to get your feet wet. 
And I was in for seven months when the pandemic hit. We just went through developing our new strategy, just finished uh, approval of the, the budget for the upcoming year. We brought that strategy down into an operational plan. I'd hired a couple of people. We were going to hit the ground running March yep. 1st. Yep. And two weeks in, COVID yeah, March hit. March 17th, the world shut down. Yeah. Yeah. Very quickly, what what do they do there? So because this COVID affected this immensely. Yeah. And so we're, we were an organization that supports women who have to travel for cancer treatment. Right. Primarily through housing. So we have, we had, I don't work there anymore. Yeah. Compassion House Foundation has um, a house that's 17,000 square feet, 16 rooms that people can stay when they have to come into Edmonton for cancer treatment. Now, people going through cancer treatment are seriously immunocompromised. Yep. And you have a global pandemic that could kill them. Like anyone is at risk, but when you have that kind of um, immunocompromised. When you're that sick. Yeah, when you're that sick, like a common cold can put someone in ICU. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to act quickly and figure out how do we keep this open? Because at the end of the day, cancer doesn't take a day off, no. right? Like just because the rest of the world's shutting down and there's this other health crisis doesn't mean things change there. It's terrible to say it, but um, cancer is relentless. It, it is. does not stop. Yeah. Right. And so it was, you know, really putting me as a leader to the test and also understanding like no one had been through that before. So no one had the roadmap. No, no one had the answers. Yeah. And I had a board who, you know, while they, they may care about the cause, they're all dealing with their own issues within their own businesses yeah. and how they're going to pivot there. So there wasn't a lot of support there. Yeah. And there's not a lot of other organizations that did what we did. It's so unique. And so, so unique. we made the decision that we were not going to shut down. Other organizations chose to close their doors, at least temporarily. And we said, no, we're not doing that. Um, but it required rapid changes quickly. And also, um, a lot of organizations made the decision not to ask for money at that time because they felt like it was going to be... Um, you know, maybe a little bit insensitive to a lot of people were being laid off at the time, right? And I said, well, if we don't ask for money, we're going to be laying people off too. Yeah. And so we had to make that decision. And within two weeks, we had a campaign ready to go called Help the House. We did ask and the community responded in just an incredible way. Yeah. Like, I think at that time, people felt helpless. They didn't know, like they were seeing all of this happen. You're watching CNN and there's the death ticker it's and it's nonstop. horrible, right? Yeah. But people want to help. Like people yeah. generally want to help. And so... We gave them that opportunity and the way that the community responded was just Huge. so incredible. And you felt, it made us feel like, okay, we can get through this. Yeah. Right. We're not alone. It, it was we can such do a, it. it was such a crazy time for everybody. It didn't matter who you were, what you did for a job or how old you were. Like it was just absolute, we, nobody knew what to do. Right. And I know within our organization, same thing, like, um, you know, a lot of the work that we do is it's got to be face to face. Mm -hmm. So how do we do that? How do we do that safely? How do we, uh, money, you know, we're, we're, but again, especially this community, um, they give and they care. And, and I know for you and for me and for other folks like us who, who are in this realm, like we're so thankful for that. We really are, you know, um, now, all of this, like you said, whenever you were, you know, you always got to have something on the go. You've got to have other things happening as well. Um, this is where you and I met. Mm -hmm. Is I actually met your husband. Um, 
and we're going to bring him on the podcast as well eventually um super good guy and uh, talk about his journey but i had met him and then you would have popped up on social media somehow with his social media and i knew who you were because of your job because it was a high profile job right it was and but now you're transitioning full time, um, or or really putting more into what, what do you call it a, a side hustle, a side business, yeah. um, an endeavor that I'm very thankful that you do because you actually impacted our organization, you can use services quite a bit. Talk to us about what your your other passion is. Yeah, yeah. So I think just kind of coming back to that pursuit of like helping and of making an impact and having purpose-driven work, I saw the opportunity to kind of expand what I was doing within my own organization. I think, you know, the pandemic was such was such a good learning experience for me. And I do want to just come back to that because you said something earlier that hit, you talked about, you know, you're such an independent person. You've had to do all these things by yourself. That was my biggest downfall being a CEO. Like, mm. and especially at that beginning part of the pandemic, because I felt like I had to shoulder it all. And... I nearly burnt out during that beginning part because I was working, you know, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, like wake up in the morning, pick up my laptop and just start. And I didn't, I didn't want to scare anyone by saying, you know, this is the situation that we're in. We might have to lay people off or we might have to close if this scenario happens or whatever that might be. I just said, I don't want to have to lay anyone off. I'll do whatever it takes not to have to do that. Yeah. And what I realized was that by not being honest about what the situation was, by not having those conversations, I was leaving people in the dark and I was actually um, underutilizing them when like they wanted to help, right? It comes back to that conversation about community. They want to help. And so my team wanted to help, but they didn't know how to help me because I wasn't giving them that opportunity. And I really had to learn that through um, that time. And, um, you know, it took some sometimes them coming to me and saying, like, we see you're struggling and we want to help you, but you have to give us that opportunity too. And so I learned a lot through probably the last two and a half years there. And when I was able to better leverage my team and to just be honest when I was struggling or within, when the organization was struggling or whatever issue that we had, we could take it on together. Yeah. And through that teamwork, really um, move things forward. But leadership's a tricky thing. So tricky. Because you. So this is, you know, some of my experiences, you feel that everyone's looking to you and, but at the end of the day, we, we bring these people onto our teams because they're good at what they do. So let's just let them do what they do. And, but it's hard sometimes. Cause I mean, listen, all executive directors, CEOs, there's a little bit of ego involved. There's, I mean, that's just the way we are. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's cool that, that, you're open to learning that stuff because sometimes those egos that we have don't allow that. Yeah. Um, and when you're used to being the person that takes care of everyone else, right. which has been my whole life, yeah. you feel like all that, you have to shoulder that responsibility. Like for me, it's I'm, I'm responsible to them, not mm -hmm. that this is a mutual thing. And so when you're the main caregiver, the main helper, you're not asking other people for help. Exactly. Right. You just aren't you, you, I don't need it. I'm not going to ask you for it. I'll just get this done myself. Yeah. And it's not even a trust thing. That actually goes back to your trauma. Yeah. It really does. It goes back to where you come from, what you went through. Um, but on this journey yeah. that we call life, you learned that, which I think is incredible. So. Yeah. But I, I mean, through that, I really learned the idea of it, some people have that capacity and we can give it to them. Others, you need to build that in. Yeah. 
And I think when you invest in people in that way too, you can take some of that off of your shoulders and it really builds um, the organization as well for the future, yeah. which then can make me feel better when I'm not there anymore because yeah. I know I have good people in place yeah. who are more than capable to do the job with yeah. or without me at the helm, right? Yeah. So that was really important. And I've done consulting on the side for a long time, um, mostly in the fundraising um, space and kind of public relations. And then it's kind of shifted over the years to be more focused on strategy as well as kind of equity, diversity, and inclusion work. And that really is kind of through a lot of what I learned as a CEO um, and how to build capacity within the organization, how to have people see how their everyday work is leading towards um, you know, the vision, the mission of the organization. And when I learned some of those lessons as a CEO, I was able to take that into my consulting practice. And that's, yeah, like you said, how we met and I got to work on strategy with you and your team, which was awesome. Um, super fun, guys. We bring, try to have a little fun. If you bring them cookies, fun. if you don't, you may or may not uh, yeah. be in hot water. So yeah. <laughs> Cookies are good. <laughs> I did get heckled a little. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, and so I have fortunately um, been able to kind of make that pivot and have a lot of work coming at me now. I yeah. wasn't really expecting it when I... <laughs> When I made the announcement that I was leaving my role, I thought, oh, I'm going to have like a few months to just like a bit of a sabbatical. I'm going to travel. I'm going to have some spa days. We relax. talked about it. We talked about being in a moo moo, yeah. eating bonbons on the couch, watching the price is right. I know. That has, sounds perfect. It has not been that. No. <laughs> when you're good at what you do, people want you to come and share that. And I will say this from experience. Um, you're very good at what you do. We had an incredible experience uh, working on a strategy with you. And you taught us a lot of things. Um, I've been through a lot of those sessions in the past. And, and don't get me wrong, they've been good. I've learned a lot. Um, but you flip a lot of it upside down, which I thought was great. And we really were quite excited about what our future is. And truth be told, this podcast is part of that strategy. So, I mean, it kind of, it's kind of came out of that as well. Um, we're going to wrap up soon, but, but let me ask you, as far as, as passion goes, you know, you love strategy, you love leadership, you love teaching people, you love working with people, um, you like your husband, which is good. Um, we haven't even touched on the fact that, that you're Métis, mm -hmm. and I know that you have a lot of um, interest and a lot of... Uh, wanting to work within indigenous communities to to help in particular if i'm not mistaken uh young indigenous females mm -hmm. um talk to us a little bit about that what talk to us about that passion yeah i think i think again just coming back to lived experience when you see yourself in something and you see the opportunity that's there if people have the right supports around them and what the possibilities are I mean, hopefully I can be a bit of a, um, like something to look to and say like it is possible. Mm -hmm. um, not that everything's been easy or perfect along the way, but you can overcome a lot of that. And for me, it comes back to impact, right? Like whether it's impacting one person's lives or thousands of people's lives, I think it really matters and investing in people and helping them see what they can be right like you're not going to change people you can just bring the good in them out and like build their confidence and capacity um, and that's really important to me and so i've done a lot of work 
in that space, whether through volunteerism, um, I'm on the you know, the YWCA's board and I chair the reconciliation committee there. So they're really focused around equity and work with indigenous communities as well. Um, and my husband and I actually have a nonprofit that we co-founded with some friends called the Reed Institute, which is specifically for BIPOC youth, so black, indigenous, and people of color to get them introduced to the commercial real estate sector. But really through that teach financial, financial literacy, how to present in front of an audience, um, media relations, networking, um, teamwork, Right? And they get to learn over an eight week program as well as then pitch in front of a panel of judges on why you should invest in their property. So they get to become community investors, but really build their confidence through that and their network. And we did our first cohort um, in the spring and we had three students that got internship opportunities in the summer and one that's now working uh, while she's going through university wow. at a firm. And we're just finishing up our second cohort. Next week's the pitch competition. So. We have students that are vying for a $10,000 scholarship, which is really exciting. So again, using education as a pathway yeah. for them as well. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm really passionate about the work. I love to work with organizations that are making an impact in that space. And if I can help um, through what I'm able to bring to the table to just build that capacity and, and to help them see what the future can be, then that's, that's something that's really fulfilling to me. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Michelle, um, we like to end the podcast with inspirational or motivational or just goofy quotes, to be honest with you. Uh, do you, I don't want to put you on the spot. Do you have a quote that you like? Um, yeah, this one, people always laugh at me because I'm probably don't seem like the tattoo type. Okay. Um, most people are shocked that I have one. I actually pass out when I get needles. Okay. Uh, but when I was 20, I got a tattoo. And so on my hip, I have be the change you want to see in the world. There you go. So, it's Gandhi. Um, but also a little bit cheesy. <laughs> oh, I like it. Um, but, you know, fits with the space that I've decided to spend my life in. And um, while I will probably never get another tattoo, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm okay with that being on my body for the rest of my life as a reminder of what I'm trying to do. Tattoos hurt. I have one on the small of my back that says, I'm awesome. Mm. I don't have that I was tattoo. hoping it was a butterfly. No, I don't. I don't, ha I don't have that tattoo at all. I do have a couple of tattoos, but I don't have that one. Um, when I think of you, and, and this is actually a quote that, I don't, I don't know, like in 2022, there, there's a lot of talk about uh, resiliency. And there's a lot of, and I love the word relentless. And I actually think resiliency and relentless are siblings. Mm -hmm. I, I think that. Um, in order to get to where you need to get to in your life, you need to have resiliency, but you need to have this relentless attitude. And I think that they go hand in hand. Um, and part of this resiliency, it, it used to be this old school of, you know, be tough, like pull up your socks, let's go, stop crying, let's move forward, which is just very different now. Um, I actually still believe that there's a part of that in life that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. But when I think of you, when I think of um, your life situation, and let's be honest here, you gave us the surface story of your life. There's some shit you went through that that is much harder than what you even talked about. And, and your family dynamics, um, mom leaving the way she did, the alcoholism, just everything. And you having to be a grinder, not just through universe, but like when you were a little kid, 14, mom, all that stuff. There's a quote that I love and it actually, uh, I think of you yeah. and it's tough people last longer than tough times. You're tough. 
Thanks. Right? Emotionally, mentally. I think physically too because like you and E work out all the time. So yeah, you're pretty tough. <laughs> um, and I just really appreciate you sharing your story. I appreciate you being vulnerable. I actually do believe and my hope is that that some some young people listen to this and that they're inspired by it. Um, you didn't uh, – This I'm not trying to sound rude. You didn't come from a whole lot. Um, but you become a whole lot. And I actually believe that you're helping people a whole lot. So I thank you for that. Um, if anybody needs some, some good strategy uh, consulting, uh, definitely get a hold of Michelle. Where can we find you on your socials? Um, it's at Michelle O'Kiri, but with a zero. Okay. Okay. And that's on the Twitter, the, on all of it. On all of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I think I'm terrible on the Instagram and all that stuff. On the Instagram. Yeah, Find me on the Instagram and, uh, and on the Twitter. On the Twitter and the Instagram. And what else? Is there other things? Like my kids are like, they're like, do Snapchat. And I'm like, get lost. Yeah. I can barely do Facebook. Anyways. Um, thank you for being here. Um, if you want to find out more about You Can Use Services, you can go onto our socials, which I do not run, uh, but it's it's the at You Can Edmonton is for all of them. And uh, I look forward to us continuing to work together, Michelle, and thank you so much. Thank you.